Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this time that we can uh, hear from your word, and uh, we thank you for uh, the wisdom that you give us, the wisdom from your word for life, uh, for relationships, and for solving IT problems. And we pray that uh, you would bless this sermon, and amen. All right, so today we are doing part two of our mini-series called um, The Importance of Balance in Relationships. So the premise of this series is that, you know, there's a number of areas, especially in relationships, that we are called to have balance in. Like the Bible will teach about um, this being good, and on the other hand of the spectrum, or maybe something that could be considered to oppose it, something else also being good, like confronting and overlooking. And, um, and a lot of times, we as modern Christians tend to only focus on one or the other. And that's unhealthy. So that's the premise of this series. Last week, we looked at um, overlooking versus confronting and being gentle versus being firm and the balance you need to have in those areas. Um, So the next one we're going to look at, I I call giving versus keeping. Um, And before I explain it, let's look at a few verses that kind of explain what I'm trying to get at. Let's look at Galatians 6, uh, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Sounds like that would involve giving. But let's also look at 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we see, you know, the idea of we're encouraged to give. Basically, I'm trying to, like, set up a spectrum with two ends. One where, like, you give to, like, every single cause that comes up, every single person who needs it without consideration, versus, like, not giving beyond the tithe at all. Um, and both of those have problems. So let's look at, um, you know, the downsides of being unbalanced in this area or on this spectrum. So let's start with giving too much or giving to, like, every single person or opportunity that you see come up. I used to do this a lot, and it meant I had no money. Um, (laughs) We'll see that that is part of the main problem with it. So first, uh, the downsides of giving too much. Number one, opportunity cost. And as always, you have an outline in your bulletin that has these points written down. But opportunity cost, it's something that I learned about in economics and accounting. And opportunity cost means if you spend money on one thing, you no longer have that money to spend on something else. So... You're not just paying the price of the money, you're paying with the loss of the opportunity to do all the other things you could have done with that money. That applies for any given thing. That applies for how you use your time. Opportunity cost is a real thing, and it's something you should think about. But, you know, any usage of scarce resources involves opportunity cost. If I use my time you know, to do, to study, 
I don't have that time, you know, to serve or to spend time with Teresa. Everything has opportunity cost. And we as Christians should want, like, to use our money not just to advance God's kingdom, but to do so in an effective way. We should want to be smart about our giving. I used to give money to like every single person I saw on the streets who asked for money. And I lost opportunity cost. You lose opportunity cost all the time, but what I was doing probably wasn't worth it. So that's the first downside of being on the end of the spectrum, giving to everyone you see, giving all the time without consideration or regard. The second uh, potential downside of giving too much, even though I think most of us don't fall on the spectrum, land on the side of giving too much, I wanted to point it out anyways, because I know I've used to have problems with this, and I know other people who do, um, and it's just good to understand the balance that God's Word directs us to have. But the second downside I wanted to look at is not enjoying what God has given you to enjoy. Uh, Let's look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I like to compare this to a a similar concept because, you know, time and money can almost always be compared to each other because, you know, you can trade time and money in almost any circumstance. But, um... There's a verse in the Psalms that says, God gives sleep to his beloved. God gives sleep to his beloved. We could just constantly work, work, work all the time to be serving God and serving others, but God doesn't need that. God has an infinite supply. God doesn't need us, and God has enough to give sleep to his beloved. Not only that, but God does bless us with, I believe, a enough to spend a little bit on our own enjoyment. I think that's something God does. Obviously, he also gives us wisdom to make good financial decisions, and if we decline his wisdom, we might not have that money. But this is a a generalization principle of God's word. God gives us things to enjoy. The third downside of uh, giving to every single person or cause you see without any um, consideration or discrimination uh, is potentially not having enough to take care of yourself or your family. Let's look at uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives or his family, and especially the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty strong. So, you know, God gives us each certain responsibilities. Everyone has certain responsibilities that God has given them. And there's, you know, there's causes you could give to that would be good to give to that are outside of your responsibilities. But if you're neglecting your God-given responsibilities in order to give to those things, that's a problem. You have to prioritize. 
You have to handle the responsibilities that God has assigned to you as an individual. You don't help someone else with their responsibilities if you haven't completed yours. All right, um, so those were the three downsides of being unbalanced on the end of, you know, giving to absolutely everything all the time. Uh, but let's look at the other end of it. Let's look at, like, never giving or almost never giving. Uh, I've got two downsides or downfalls to this. The first one is that it shows that your heart isn't where Christ wants it to be. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. God wants our heart to be on the things of his kingdom. And if we have the ability to give, you know, beyond the tithe, and we never do, again, it's an optional thing, but if we never do, it shows that our hearts aren't on the things of God's kingdom. And that should be a concern. It shows that we're not thinking about eternity and about making a difference and, you know, that's going to, outlast our lives. And it shows that we don't care about, you know, the causes that we should care about, that Christ would have us to care about. The second downside to falling on the end of the spectrum of never giving or almost never giving is that you won't be having the impact that you could be having. God's given us a real opportunity and privilege that we have the ability to make a difference in his kingdom. Like, that's a real honor. By giving, we can have a real impact in the lives of others that could last for eternity, and we should value that. And if we fall on the spectrum of, like, never giving or never giving beyond the tithe... We're not valuing that impact. It means we don't understand the value of that. So let's talk some about what the ideal balance would be. Um, So the ideal balance would involve understanding all the things you could use money on and prioritizing them properly. You know, you can use money to buy food. That's pretty important. I hear we die without it. I certainly feel like I'm dying when I go without it. Um, You know, you need money to take care of your family. There's money to enjoy and there's money to give. And we need to understand all the things, even within those categories, we could be using money on and prioritize them accordingly. Because even within those, some things are more effective than others.
The ideal balance would involve having an eternal perspective, but also understanding that it's sometimes wiser to not give to a certain person or cause. You really got to understand the opportunity cost. It should affect your view on all the decisions you make about money and about time. Opportunity cost is an important concept. You only have so much. Your resources are scarce. God gives them to you abundantly, but they are limited. They're limited in your case, not in God's. And we need to keep in mind that we are stewards and we'll give an account to God for how, we, how we've lived our lives and used the resources he's given us. And God wants to reward us for being good stewards. All right, so we're closing off this section now that we've talked about, um, you know, the spectrum, the ideal balance. And uh, now we're going to talk about some guidelines, just some general guidelines. I've got two of them. Number one, if you're in debt, you shouldn't be giving beyond your tithe. Let's look at two verses, two passages. Let's look at Romans verse 13, 7, uh, no, Romans chapter 13, 7 through 8. Pay all to what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's pretty clear. And you know, we can gather from, you know, you have to interpret scripture with scripture. We can gather by um, looking at this within the light of other verses on debt, especially ones from, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament, that, you know, short-term investment debt is allowed. Or if, you know, your situation gets bad enough where you would otherwise be dying for starvation, you know, debt like that is allowed. But um, in general, we shouldn't have debt, though short-term investment debt is allowed. And can even be a good idea, but it depends. Uh, kind of similar to that, or to this point on, um, you know, if you're in debt, you shouldn't be giving beyond your tithe. Let's look at Matthew 15, 1 through 8. The then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus answered them, Why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father or mother. So for the sake of tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So this is just an example. Um, you know, the, the principle here, like, God gave a responsibility. The idea of honoring your parents in this scenario is your parents are old, they can't work, 
you can support them, you should support them, but nope, my money's been given to God. And that, the Pharisees were encouraging some people to do that, I guess, or they were doing that themselves. And they were avoiding, they were ignoring the word of God for the sake of tradition. We shouldn't be putting optional things we could be giving to above the responsibilities God's given us. And that does include paying off debt. Uh, Second guideline. Um, Take advantage of what I call the 80-20 principle. So the 80-20 principle um, is a generalization and is not always true, but it's the idea that in a lot of things, uh, 20% of the effort accomplishes 80% of the results, and in a number of things it is true, though not everything, uh, nor should it be true in everything. But this can be true in a number of areas related to finances. You know, in some investment portfolios or some of the things you could invest in, some things are just going to be way more effective than others. And the whole idea of taking advantage of the 80-20 principles, those things that accomplish more, pour more into those. Good idea, right? So um, there's two areas we should do that, well, three with our finances, but we should do that with giving. Like, we shouldn't just give to every single thing that comes up. Why? Resources are scarce. We can't give to every single thing that comes up. We have to choose which one we think would be the most effective use of finances. So that applies to giving and investing. But I think, you know, we all have money we spend on ourselves for staying alive for, like, necessities, and also somewhat for enjoyment. But even on that, you should have the mindset of, like, an 80-20, taking advantage of the 80-20 idea. So I have, Teresa and I have some money in our budget set aside to spend on just enjoying time with each other. But we could be spending money on, like, expensive this and expensive that, but instead we find things that we get a high amount of enjoyment of that don't cost much money. And things like that exist. And if you can find those, you'll end up with more money. Because you won't be spending as much, but you'll still have good return on that. You'll still get good enjoyment out of it. We should look to do that because that's good stewardship. Then we'd have more money for giving or more money for more enjoyment. But we should be seeking to be good stewards. And the 80-20 principle definitely doesn't apply to everything, but it's something you should think about with your finances. Being effective. Not just in giving, and investing, and even in spending them on your own enjoyment. Because then you'll have more. As a generalization, um, I definitely don't... Some people say it applies to everything... The idea that it applies to everything is ridiculous, in my opinion. Uh, it's a generalization. It, I think it applies to a lot of things. Well, not necessarily literally that, but the idea that some things are more effective than others by a good amount. 
I just like to call it the 80-20 principle because it's a short name. This is something we should apply to our finances in general. All right, so that's that. Uh, next area of balance we need in relationships. This is a fun one. Being angry versus not being angry. A lot of us were probably taught at some point or another that anger is bad. And that is somewhat true. We're going to look at that. We're going to think about that. Let's look at Ephesians verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Huh, that's interesting. Be angry. This is actually a quote from Psalm, Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. Let's look at that. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. So we're told to be angry. We'll get back to that. Let's also look at James 1 verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Slow to anger is a recurring concept in the Bible. Slow to anger doesn't mean never get angry. It means being slow to get angry. It could, the author, and you know, the Holy Spirit speaking through the author, could have chose to say, never get angry. Why not? We'll get into that. But it's a recurring theme in the scriptures, not never get angry, but be slow to anger. Jesus got angry. Amen. Let's look at two examples. Just, you know, we, we kind of looked at some that implied that last uh, on part one. But let's just look at two passages that just explicitly say Jesus was angry. Mark 3, verses 1 through 5. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether or not he was going to heal him on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand, and it was restored. So the Pharisees didn't want Jesus to heal people on the Sabbath because they cared more about keeping traditions than they cared about people. They were misinterpreting God's commandment about the Sabbath to the end where they weren't keeping the Sabbath, they were keeping their traditions. And that made Jesus angry. 
Their hardness of heart made Jesus angry. Let's look at Mark 10, uh, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Indignant means angry. He was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child won't enter it at all. And he took them into his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So, you know, a lot of us have been taught that anger is wrong. But Jesus is perfect, and Jesus got angry. Hmm. All right, let's look at why getting angry, why anger can be a good thing. So before we understand why anger is good, we need to understand what anger is. So I have a a definition that I think is pretty accurate for anger. Anger is our emotional response to perceived injustice that we desire to be changed, stopped, or made right. Anger is our emotional response to perceived injustice that we desire to be changed, stopped, or made right. I think it's interesting that, you know, we're made in God's image, and justice is such a part of that, that we have our own emotion, a unique emotion, just corresponding to justice. So anger is an emotional response to perceived injustice that we desire to be changed, slapped or made right. But sometimes we perceive injustice that we don't necessarily have a desire to see changed. And so that won't make us angry. You know, sometimes when I was a kid, I would take candy that wasn't mine. I saw that as injustice, but I did not want it changed or made right. (laughs) And it did not make me angry. (laughs) I also want to point out real quick, um, let's try to avoid confusing anger and frustration, which they often tend to feel very similar, but are not the same. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm not angry, I'm frustrated? Um, I did some researching online, and I I did find a number of people who agree anger has to do with perceived wrong or perceived injustice. Anger tends to also be more intense than frustration and often more sudden. Frustration is kind of built up over time and is um, not as intense of an emotion and doesn't necessarily have to do with injustice. But anger is part of God's design. If we responded to perceived injustice by not caring or with indifference, that wouldn't be loving or just. God is loving and just, so he responds emotionally to injustice with anger. And God made us to be righteous like he is. So when he designed us in his image, he designed us to respond to perceived injustice with anger. And that's good. Being indifferent to injustice isn't very loving, is it? 
So the next section I want to look at, when anger can become bad, or when getting angry can become bad. So we, we've looked at why anger is good, but you know, any part of our being can be twisted by sin. It will be twisted by sin. Anger can become bad. Shocker. Uh, let's look at when anger becomes bad. Number one, if it controls us instead of us controlling it. You know, anything that we let control us is bad and is idolatry. Anything that we would allow to drive us to do something outside of what God would have us to do is controlling us and is idolatry. So, you know, the first and most obvious way you can tell if, like, anger is controlling you, if it drives, you, if it drives us to act unloving. So I have an example. Um, it, a situation, a life situation where anger might come up a lot might be parenting. Kids do unjust things, because kids are human, and we all do unjust things. So, um, you know, let's say you've got two kids, two children, and one of them, you know, hits the other so that they can take their stuff. That's unjust. If that makes you mad, that's reasonable. But how you respond to that anger, how you handle that, determines whether or not, you know, it's controlling you. If you respond to it, in a godly way, you'll rebuke the child who punched the other in a loving but firm way. Or, if you let your anger control you, you might just chew them out in a non-constructive way. You're so, when are you ever going to get it together? You're never going to grow up. All you ever do is complain and hit your sister. Like, that's not edifying. That's not loving. That's not going to help anyone. That's letting your anger, which was reasonable anger, to control you. So at this point, your anger has become bad because you started to let it control you. So the first thing that can make anger become bad is if it, if it drives us to act unloving or if it controls us. I want to make a comparison real quick comparing anger to hunger um, to make a point of how it is good. Let's look at Proverbs 16, verse 26. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. God made hunger, and hunger is a good thing. Without hunger, it's very possible that we would just stop eating and then die. Um, so God made hunger, and it's a good thing. But if your hunger controls you, that's what we call gluttony. And that's not good. That also leads people to die. If it's, you know, taken on too far for too long. So just like hunger, anger is good, but not if it controls you. Second thing that can make anger become a bad thing. If we're angry all the time. You know, it said in Ephesians 4, when we looked at it, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That basically means don't stay angry for longer than a day. God didn't design us to be angry all the time. Nor does he want us to be. That would be bad. 
one of the reasons it would be bad is, um, you know, anger is a burden. It's physically exhausting to be angry. And it's something we weren't designed to experience all the time. I want to look at a slightly related verse, Proverbs 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Being angry all the time doesn't sound very tranquil to me. And I'm, you know, a lot of us have had phases of our lives where we had a lot of anger. And it can be exhausting. I was reading um, on a government health website the other day, the long-term physical effects of uncontrolled anger include increased anxiety, high blood pressure, and headaches. You weren't made to be angry all the time. It's not good for you. Uh, The third thing that can make anger bad is if our anger is unjust or uncalled for. So, um, you know, I said anger is our response to perceived injustice, and that's true. But what happens when our perception is wrong? Well, that can affect it. So the first thing I want to talk about, if we're just to give like a real clear, solid example, if we're mad at God for being righteous and for doing the right thing, which sometimes we do, that is outright unjust of us. We can be mad at God for any of the things that God might do, and everything he does is righteous, and if we're mad at God, that's unjust anger. That's sinful. It's wrong because it's saying that God committed wrong. You're believing in your heart that God did something unjust, and that's wrong. It's wrong because it's doubting God, and it's wrong because it's pride, because it's believing that you could have done better had you been in God's place. I wouldn't have committed that injustice if I were God. So anger can become, anger can be unjust or uncalled for. You know, the second way this can happen is if we're angry at someone for something we think they did, but they didn't actually do. You know, that's anger that's uncalled for. We need to be careful about that. If my stapler is missing at work and I get really mad at my coworker about it, but they didn't actually take it, that's a problem. Anger is good in its concept, but application of it might be wrong. We need to be careful about what we're angry about because anger's, you know, it's perceived injustice. We need to make sure our perceptions are right. Or if Teresa's picking up food and she, you know, doesn't get me something and I'm mad because I think she must have done it on purpose, she must have known I wanted something and must have purposefully not gotten it for me, That's the problem. Because I'm assuming that I know the motives of her heart, and I don't. And I would say 99.9%, but let's just be honest. That didn't happen. That wouldn't happen. We shouldn't. We really need to watch out for getting angry over what we think is in other people's hearts toward us. Because we don't necessarily know it. We need to be very careful about that. 
And it's, it's an easy mistake to make, especially over something like that. You knew I wanted McDonald's. The last example, similar to the first one, if we're mad at um, someone for doing something that isn't wrong, that's unjust anger. Because we're believing in our hearts that they committed injustice when what they did that we're perceiving accurately wasn't wrong. So if I'm mad at someone for not giving me something that belongs to them, that's unjust anger. It's their right to keep what's theirs. They don't have to give it to me. You know, they have to follow God's law. The law of my idolatrous, unjust heart might say, everybody owes me a sandwich. But that is my law, not God's. And the fact that I expect other people to follow it is a problem. That's idolatry. That's replacing God's law with mine. So anger is good, but if it's, it can become unjust or uncalled for if the thing that we perceive as injustice isn't actually injustice. I think the most problem common with anger, similar to that last example, is a lot of our anger is based on selfishness. All right, so we've got 10 minutes left. Let's, I'll try to hurry. All right, downfalls of being unbalanced. First area, never getting angry. Never getting angry can be a problem. First reason, it, it probably means you're repressing your anger. Frankly, I don't believe that there's people who exist who never get angry. If you never get angry, it's possible, but there's very good odds you're just repressing your anger and you probably run the risk of blowing up one day. Second reason, um, anger is part of love and justice. So if you never get angry, either you never pay attention to what's actually going on, or love and justice just aren't in your heart. So never getting angry can be a sign of some problems going on. It's like never getting hungry would be a sign of some problems going on. Downfalls of the other end of the spectrum, being quick to get angry. Number one, it's sinful to be quick to get angry because the scriptures explicitly say several times, be slow to anger. They say that God is slow to anger. God is very patient with us. God does get angry, but God is very patient, especially for all the absurdly like, ridiculous things we do. <laughs> so being quick to anger is sinful. Second, you know, being quick to be angry or being angry like all the time, it can ruin relationships. Let's look at Proverbs 29, verse 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one who is given to anger causes much transgression. If you're angry all the time, it's going to be much easier to be controlled by your anger. And, you know, being angry all the time is just outright commanded against. Do you know anyone who's angry all the time? How much do you enjoy hanging out with them? 
Exactly. And as we already looked at, it's bad for your health, like, to be quick to get angry. If you're quick to get angry, it's literally bad for your health. It's creating stress. Stress adds up. Stress isn't good for the body. Stress causes long-term problems, including high blood pressure, not living as long, and hair loss. <laughs> not necessarily in that order. <laughs> The last problem that I want to talk about with like being quick to get angry is being quick to get angry almost always goes along with being self-centered. If most of our anger is, in, is directed towards injustice or perceived injustice that happened towards us and not towards others, it's a sign that we care about ourselves more than we care about others. Again, I really think the biggest problem with most anger problems is that people are just angry that life didn't go their way, and they perceive that as unjust. That's a problem. If you think it's unjust that life didn't go your way, that's a problem. That's when anger becomes a problem. Because it's not unjust that life didn't go your way. There are genuine injustices that you wish wouldn't happen, but just life going, not going your way isn't injustice. Me not getting a promotion that I want but don't deserve, that's not injustice. Me not having friends when I was 16 because I didn't actually talk to anyone and I wasn't friendly, that wasn't injustice. And it's not God's fault. In that case, it was specifically my fault. But it's easy to get mad at other people. It's easy to blame other people and to call it injustice. All right. Um, Got to move quick. The ideal balance. What's the ideal balance with this? I would say the ideal balance is to get angry over things that actually call for it, but to be slow to anger and to handle that anger in a godly way. Handling it in a godly way means never letting it cause you to act unloving. Handling it in a godly way means not letting it cause you to act unloving, and it involves not letting it last more than a day. If you're staying angry at the same person for more than a day, that's sin. If you get angry reoccurring because they're doing the same thing recurring, that's fine. But don't let it last more than a day per time. Deal with it. There's ways to deal with it that are healthy. So, um, things to keep in mind. As Christians, number one, we as Christians should desire mercy and justice. This one's complicated. We should desire mer- mercy and justice. God desires both mercy and justice. Um, I had a list of verses, but we don't have time to go into them. But most of us already get that God desires mercy and justice, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, How can we desire mercy and justice at the same time? 
So number one, we should want everyone to be saved, and therefore we should want them to be forgiven. That's the same thing. We should want them to be forgiven by God for the wrong things they've done to us and those we care about. We should want them to be forgiven. But we should also want for God to carry out justice. And God will carry out justice. And we should want that. And one of the most awesome ways God carries out justice is by judging the sins of Christ's people in the voluntary death of Christ for his people. So that's how we can desire both mercy and justice. That's how God desires both mercy and justice. It's all possible because of the death of Christ. We can desire that everyone be shown mercy and desire that God would carry out justice. And we should desire that. Preferably, justice would happen in people coming to Christ, in Christ paying for their injustice. But even if they don't, God will still carry out justice, and we should see that as good. Justice is going to happen one way or another, either in Christ paying for it or in the individual paying for it. Uh, let's, uh, next point. Biblical justice has jurisdiction. Let's look at Romans 12, 19. Can't talk about anger without talking about justice and, you know, some biblical thoughts on justice. Mm -hmm. Biblical justice has jurisdiction, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, one reason we don't avenge ourselves is because biblical jurisdiction is a thing. It means justice will happen, but it's not our place to carry it out. It's God's place and to whom whoever he delegates it to. God delegates that. Who does he delegate it to? The established government. Let's look at Romans 13, uh, 1 through 4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you want to not have fear of the one in authority? Do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Jurisdiction is a thing. If you don't know what jurisdiction means, look it up on Google, because we don't have time for that. But jurisdiction is part of biblical justice. All right, uh, third point, things to keep in mind. Don't repress your anger. Repressing your anger is not a very biblical way to deal with it. So I kind of consider repressing anger to be something like, well, if someone wrongs me and I just say, oh, it's not wrong, they didn't mean it, and I justify it so that I can manage to not be angry because I don't want to deal with it and I don't want to feel angry because it's a burden. I don't want to deal with the struggle of forgiving them, so I'm just going to justify what they did and say it wasn't wrong. That's repressing anger. And that's bad. That's going to lead to, that's false forgiveness. Forgiveness involves recognizing the wrong that the other person did, recognizing and admitting it was wrong, and choosing, um, you know, to forgive them. 
If you're just denying that they wronged you, that's false forgiveness. And it leads to problems. It leads to pent-up anger, and I think it can even lead to self-worth issues. Because what you're subconsciously saying to yourself, they can walk all over me and treat me like a rug, and that's not wrong. But that is wrong. What you're subconsciously telling yourself is, they can do these things to me and walk all over me like a rug, and God doesn't call it wrong. That's going to start to affect you over time. That's going to affect you emotionally whether you see it or not. So don't repress your anger. Don't practice false forgiveness. All right, last point. Um, we as Christians are always to forgive. There's two vo- verses that just make it you know, plain as day. Mark 11, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. It doesn't say unless they murdered your spouse. It doesn't say unless they committed adultery with your spouse. It doesn't say, but you don't have to if they chopped off your leg. And none of those things have happened to us, I don't think. But he doesn't make any exceptions. If you have anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father also will forgive your trespasses. Let's look at Matthew 6.15. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, again, he makes no exception, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. We're going to end with this section with what is forgiveness. So I did want to include a solid definition of forgiveness on this because this is important. We are always to forgive. Anger is good, but we are always to forgive, period. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a choice to not seek or desire harm against the other person in response to what they did. On the other hand, on the inverse, it's a choice to seek and to desire good for that person in spite of what they did, while admitting that what they did was wrong. And as we choose that, we can have peace about it, knowing that God will carry out justice one way or the other. And we can hope that that justice is the mercy of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to hear from your word. Thank you for the wisdom that you give us for handling anger and for understanding our design as image bearers. We pray that we would use this knowledge. We pray that we would have anger and have controlled anger. We pray that our anger wouldn't be over selfish and unjust things. We pray that we'd learn to handle it in a reasonable way. We'd also handle and manage our finances in a reasonable way. We pray that uh, you'd bless our worship this day, and amen.